Welcome. You're listening to The Aligned Self, conversations in creating a conscious and abundant life. This is Daniel DeNovi. I'll be your guide and host. Let's see just where we can take this. Hello, friend, and welcome back to this continuing conversation on emotion and vibration. This is actually part two of uh, an unlimited series. <laughs> I don't know how many I'm going to have in this, but I'm going to keep talking around this uh, on an ongoing basis until I feel like I've done it justice. And just to keep it consistent, I'm going to be naming it Mastering Emotion and Vibration in the different parts. You know, part one, part two, part three, part four, part seven. I don't know how many parts we're going to have, but we'll just see where it goes. So if you haven't yet listened to part one of this uh, series, I suggest you go back there because it will probably help set up the foundation of everything that follows. But with that said, I will summarize quickly what I did say in that episode. And that is, as a human being, we are constantly, I guess, engaged in whether or not we are in stress or danger or fear or growth, relaxation. Our body, as a barometer, is constantly taking an assessment of our environment, of our attitudes, of our perceptions, our thoughts, and determining whether or not we're in danger or in growth. Now, something I didn't say in that first episode is that it doesn't matter what happens to us, but it depends on how we're perceiving what's going on. That determines whether or not we feel or we're perceiving as if we're in danger or growth. Now, when I say danger, that may seem a little over the top, but on a fundamental level, we're either in protection mode or we're in growth mode or relaxation mode. Now, in the context of manifestation, we can actually manifest from no matter where we are on the emotional scale. But understand that it, when it is south of our homeostasis or our emotional set point, we tend to attract more of the same, more of the things we don't want more than likely. And when we're north of that homeostatic line, we are in joy and love and growth and interest and satisfaction. We are going to attract more of what we deliberately want. Now, I ended that last episode talking about why we typically, as human beings, find it difficult to stay in a high-vibe state, especially in the modern world. And that's because across the board in the population, about 80 to 85% of the people actually live day in, day out, and have adapted, acclimated, and acquiesced to a low-grade, ongoing chronic stress condition or a stress environment. And that becomes our emotional set point. I describe all the ins and outs of that in the first episode. Also, at the end of that first episode, I talked about my dislike, my consternation, my, my conundrum, my inner conundrum that I have. Dislike's kind of a strong word, but I dislike it. This term of toxic positivity. And I promised in this episode I was going to take a deeper dive around toxic positivity and my position on it and why I think the way I do about it. But also in this episode, I'm going to talk about pain, why we experience emotional pain, what it's actually communicating to us. Do all thoughts have relative importance? I mean, if we feel something, is it really all that valuable, all that important? Or could it just be a feeling? And then where do our feelings come from? Why are they there? How are we going to use them to help us navigate life, navigate our experience, navigate our thoughts and what we're creating? 
and manifesting. How do we develop this sensory acuity to determine what are our feelings at any given moment and where are we heading? What are we creating based on our current level of emotional offering? Now, like I said in the first episode, I may use the terms emotion and vibration interchangeably. When I say one or the other, I mean the same. And so let's dive deeper. Like I did in the first episode, I'm going to lean into Biology 101, Psychology 101. As a human being, why do we feel pain? What's the purpose of pain? On a fundamental level, it's meant to motivate us, move away from there. Don't do that. Stop doing it. It's not aligned with well-being. That is dangerous. When I was a kid, probably five or six, maybe even seven, I think it was like five or six, we used to burn our trash in a 55-barrel drum, an old oil drum. There was no such thing as trash pickup. And so we would sort out the food scraps, and that would become compost, and paper and plastic and everything else was burned in this 55-gallon drum. Now, at a young age, I was always fascinated with fire, sometimes to my detriment, but I was always fascinated with fire, and I can remember it was in the winter time, and this fire had been going inside the drum for quite a while, and I wanted to look at it. I was all by myself out there playing in the snow, and I had my little mittens that my grandmother had knitted for me, and I wanted to see it. So I reached up with my mittens, and I heard this sizzle of the snow that was on my mittens sizzle against the, the barrel. But I pulled myself up. I was just tall enough to look over the top of it, pulled myself up, and as I did, I kissed the barrel. Not on purpose, but I just kind of leaned into it, and my body fell forward, and my lips were pressed against this hot steel 55-gallon drum, and I burned my lips. The response and the pain was almost immediate. I pushed myself back, and I ran into the house crying. There I explained to my mom what happened, and she nurtured me, she took care of me, and she applied some salve to my lips. But for a couple days, it was quite painful. Needless to say, I never ever did that again. And so, on a fundamental level, pain informs us on what to stay away from, what not to do. And then on the flip side, those things that are pleasurable are typically good for us. And so we move away from pain and move towards pleasure. But the most impactful motivation is to move away from pain. We will move away from pain 10 times faster than we will move towards pleasure. Now, in the example of the fire barrel, the pain of my lips against that steel, that hot steel, was intense. We need not experience that much pain in order to move away from something. Many times, it's just a feeling of being uncomfortable. If you're sitting in a chair on a couch and at some point it feels uncomfortable, you will more than likely unconsciously move your body or consciously move your body. You may even move to a different chair. And then again, there's the other motivation, such as hunger and even having to use the bathroom. Once it gets to a point where it feels uncomfortable, then you typically get up, stop what you're doing, and move towards the bathroom to do your business. Or if you're hungry, you may put off a meal until it gets to a point where you can no longer put off eating. Now, it's not to say that we can't consciously override those motivations to some point, 
But on an other than conscious level, our body is communicating, hey, this is uncomfortable. Let's move into a different arena. Let's move towards you know, something that's going to satisfy this craving. Now, so far I've talked about pain as occurring on the physical level. Well, let's talk about emotional pain as a result of our thinking. And this is where I begin to formulate my argument against toxic positivity or that idea of toxic positivity as if it's a thing. And this is probably the issue that I have with toxic positivity in general, just as a phrase or a concept, is that it's too ambiguous. It's too generalized of a statement or too generalized of an idea to actually be productive in its use. And so I'm going to start talking about it in a different way or this whole process of processing our emotions. But in the realm of thinking, how do we arrive at a feeling state? Well, we have to picture certain things and we say certain things to ourselves and that results in a kinesthetic response or a feeling, a sensation. What a lot of people don't realize is that emotions don't just spontaneously arise. They are the result of a thinking process. Now, with that said, occasionally we do or are present to emotions that come up empathically, but these feelings are not ours. We're picking them up from the environment. And so for the purpose of our discussion, we're just going to put that idea on a side burner. And I'll come back to it in a future episode. So most emotions, most every emotion is a result of a thinking process. That sensation or that feeling is either pleasant or it's unpleasant. But whatever feeling state we arrive at, it is a result of how we're using our mind. How are we processing the information that's coming in? Now, one of the ideas behind toxic positivity in psychology in general is that if you have an emotion, if you have a feeling that it means something, it's important. Well, let's just consider maybe not. Maybe it's not that important. Maybe it's just a result of some process of thinking that you were engaged in, and it really doesn't have any importance at all. You can think of it this way. If you add one plus one, you get two. It doesn't mean anything. It just means if you add one and one together, the resulting sum is two. If you add four and four together, the resulting sum is eight. doesn't mean anything. It's just a result. Now, before I go further, I want to establish on a fundamental organizational level, our default position is to be in survival. And ideally, once we're beyond survival, it is to thrive. Pretend you're a hunter-gatherer and you get hungry. And so you go out and find a food source. Now, once you find a food source, you don't reinvent the wheel. You go back again and again anytime you're hungry. And you might even cultivate a storage. Take more than you need at that given moment in order to thrive and not endure the pain in the future. That is thriving. That's actually learning from that pain or learning from that uncomfortableness So you don't necessarily have to endure it again. And so it could be said that even though our first response is to move away from pain, our default is to actually move to a place where we are thriving. And part of that thriving is maintaining the integrity of our self-concept, the integrity of our self. Now, what I'm going to say may seem very simplistic at first, but I want you to test it validate it for yourself in a lot of different contexts and see if it's not true. And so this idea is that when we have thoughts, when we process thoughts, when we picture certain things, talk certain ways to ourselves, 
and it ends up in an unpleasant kinesthetic, an unpleasant feeling or sensation. In other words, it's an element of pain. It's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. And so in the context of moving away from pain, could it be saying that you're not supposed to do that, that that thought is irrelevant? It's not in alignment with maintaining the integrity of who you are. When we have thoughts that we're not enough or we're not capable enough, we're not lovable enough, or the actions of somebody else means that they don't love us and that doesn't feel good. I think it's saying you're not supposed to think that. Not that you're not supposed to, but it's just not lined up or aligned with you being your best self, aligned with who the universe, God, God us all that is, sees you to be. It is in direct conflict with your integral design as a human being. And that is why it feels uncomfortable. It's an error in your thinking. For instance, let's say that I have a girlfriend named Janet. And Janet and I have been dating for, oh, let's say three years. We've been together for a while. And we've established a sense of familiarity with each other. But one day she says to me, Daniel, I don't love you anymore. I want to break up. I want to go away. I want to go somewhere else. Part of me could say, oh, no. What's wrong with me? Why don't you love me? What's wrong with me? I love you. Why are you giving up on us? Why are you giving up on me? Give me another chance. And she might say that I don't like the way you laugh. I don't like the way you eat your food. I don't like how you're always positive and upbeat and always talking about Star Trek. I'm just done. I'm no longer interested in you. I'm leaving. And because my thought process is that there must be something wrong with me, otherwise she would have stayed. What's wrong with me? I can be in this conversation and I can be in complete misery, typically for three to six months. In fact, depending on my attachment level, depending on how much I replay this whole conversation, I can appear totally nutso to the average person and I can be in complete grieving. Another potential response is that one day Janet says, I don't love you anymore. I want to leave. I want us to go our own separate ways. I'm breaking up. My response could be, well, okay. That was fun while it lasted. And she would say, I can't stand your laughing and you're just too positive. You're always upbeat. You're never, you're like, never feels like you're normal. And you're always talking about Star Trek. And my response could be, I actually like my laugh. I like my sense of humor. And for me, it makes a big difference for me to be positive and upbeat. I like myself. I love myself. And I get that you can't appreciate Star Trek. That's okay. We just have different interests. Do you want me to help you pack up? Is there anything you want me to move? Where are you going? From that position, it was fun while it lasted, and there'll be another relationship down the road. It just was what it was, and it is what it is. You see, in the first example, my response to it is what caused all my suffering. I was in this idea that it should have, could have been some other way than the way it was showing up. The truth of the matter was, she didn't want to be with me. I can't control her. I can't control her choices. Ultimately, I need to accept it. Usually, when people break up with us and we go through that withdrawal process... We come to a realization down the road about three to six months, just as a natural process of evolving as a human being and interacting in the world, we come to a point where we accept it. But most typically, we only arrive at that point after we move through all the grieving processes. 
But the contrast between the two responses is the first one was I was playing the victim. I was impacted upon. I was at the effect of another person's choices. The second one, I was just responding to what was so, what was, what is. It is what it is, and I accepted it. Okay, you're going your separate ways. Can I help you? You know, I know that there's going to be someone else that is going to love me, that is going to appreciate me for who I am, and I don't have to change or be anything other than who I am. And in that second response, I was at cause. I was the one response-abled for how I was responding to that decision, to that set of facts. Our ultimate freedom, no matter what somebody else does or says, is our ability to choose our response. Now, I guess in the context of toxic positivity or from that camp, it could be detrimental for me to take the second approach to pretend it doesn't bother me if, in fact, it does bother me. But if I do take the position that, you know, and it's true for me, then I'm okay with it. I understand you made a different choice and your choice isn't me. I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm moving on. But if there is that disappointment underneath, or even if you have the first response, and you, at first, you appear to be a victim. I've been there in the past. I've, I've been devastated when someone says, I don't love you anymore. And, but I get to be responsible in the face of that. I get to actually look and look inside, self-reflect what's going on. I do admit it's detrimental if I do feel disappointment, if I do feel a sense of rejection, and I ignore it, I push it aside, and I try and seek a higher vibe emotion or higher vibe response without addressing that feeling of rejection or disappointment. And I think this could be the fundamental idea underneath toxic positivity, although I really don't like the word toxic or the push against being positive. And so this is how I suggest we handle those feelings of rejection and disappointment while moving towards taking responsibility for our thoughts. First and foremost, we do not want to deny that those feelings are there. We want to, first step, acknowledge them. Acknowledge whatever feeling is there. But again, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's like 1 plus 1 equals 2, or 4 plus 4 equals 8. I feel disappointed because... I expected us to be together longer. I expected us, we had a date next Friday. We had plans. No, those plans aren't going to take place. I am disappointed. Understandable. Next, I'll acknowledge I feel rejected in this. I thought she loved me. I thought she loved different aspects about me. So I have to ask, since I feel rejected, does her position, does her point of view actually mean that there's something wrong with me? Well, there's something wrong with me, according to her, but not pervasively. I do get to look. Maybe I am more of a cackler. Maybe my, my laugh is grating. Maybe it doesn't appeal to other people. Is there anything I can really do about it? Maybe. Maybe it's just who I am. Maybe I just need to accept that, you know, some people aren't going to get my sense of humor. Some people aren't going to like Star Trek. I can adjust that behavior. Maybe I don't talk about it as much. Maybe I check out and see if the other person's interested before we go down that road. I don't have to talk about Star Trek to everybody. Now, with that said, I can take her assessment of me and I can self-reflect and I can ascertain, is there any credibility to her position? And in that context, I want to consider 
Just consider what she said. Is there any potential truth to that? I don't necessarily want that to govern my behavior in an attempt to be accepted, to be loved by somebody else, for me to bend to their expectations, because then I'm not necessarily being myself. But if I take it into consideration, and in the end, I default, I default to referencing what's right for me, what's most appropriate for me. And that commitment, that inner commitment for me to maintain my own integrity will take precedence over what other people say. But I'm still in the consideration of maybe there's an element of truth there. Perhaps when I take a look at how I want to be in the world, how I want to interact with other people, then I might be able to change that behavior. But if I have to default to one way or the other, I default to maintaining my internal integrity. So, okay, let me get back to this whole process. Step number one, I want to acknowledge whatever emotions there, whatever feeling is there, I was disappointed and it's understandable. I want to acknowledge and honor the feeling. The feeling was there. It came up for a reason. It was a result of my thinking. I don't want to not honor it. I don't want to pretend that it isn't valid. It's valid based on my perspective at the time. Now, in this context, it was disappointment. In another context or another situation, it might be anger. And so I acknowledge, oh, I'm angry. Why am I angry? What need or want isn't being fulfilled? I'm disappointed. What need or want isn't being fulfilled? It's an opportunity for me to look within and what was the implied idea or implied agreement? Because we have explicit agreements and implied agreements. A lot of the implied agreements are never fully discussed. They're just assumptions we make along the way. Now, I may have been operating along a certain line of assumptions. She obviously had a different set of assumptions. And in this regard, I'm looking within, what am I doing? How am I picturing things? How am I talking to myself that ends up with the resulting feeling of disappointment? This is how I honor the feeling. Step two in honoring the feeling is that I do not want to dismiss it right away. The feeling is disappointment. Why am I disappointed? Because I wanted a longer relationship. I wanted a deeper relationship with her. I did not want it to end yet. So I accept what is she doesn't want to be in a relationship. And so I'm left with this feeling of disappointment. And the step two of honoring this feeling is how long is appropriate for me to be in disappointment. Because if I push this feeling aside, this feeling of disappointment aside, it's always going to be there. So I want to acknowledge it and handle it, process it, be with it. And so I make an agreement with myself to feel the disappointment fully. And I ask myself, I bargain with myself, how long do I need to feel disappointed, to feel as if I've honored this feeling? Is it a week? Is it six months? Do I need to really be disappointed for six months? Not necessarily. The only reason it takes that long typically is because we are in denial. We are not willing to accept the choice of another person or accept the circumstances that provided the disappointment. And in this regard, it's knowing what is within our control. You see, we cannot control other people's decisions. We cannot control other people's feelings. We cannot control a lot of different things that are instrumented or orchestrated by other people. Much of our greatest suffering is thinking that we should have, could have controlled something about that decision, something about that situation. 
But ultimately, you could have been the best thing since sliced bread, and she would have still made that decision. This represents one of the four types of events, and the four types of events are this. There are things that you can control, and you do. There's no stress there. There's no upset. There are things that you can control, but you don't. There's usually an element of unpleasant feelings that are associated with that. You feel like you could do better. There is a certain amount of stress that goes along with having a list of things that you can control, but you don't. There are things that you cannot control, and you don't even try. There's zero stress there. That's where we accept Janet's decision. It is what it is. I can't control that, and I don't even try to control it. I just accept it. And then there's the fourth type of event that creates the most amount of suffering, the most amount of upset. And that is there are things we cannot control, but we think we can or we should. And so in the context of my situation with the mythical Janet, once she says no, or I want to break up, I'm left with disappointment. I acknowledge the disappointment. I honor the feeling by figuring out why am I disappointed? What led to my disappointment? If I cannot control and I accept Janet's decision for what it is, what am I left with? Well, what I can control is me processing this disappointment. And it just may have to be something I move through. And this could be grief. It could be anger. It can be any other emotion that we actually sit with. We give ourselves permission to feel the feeling fully. And like I said earlier, we were bargaining, how about a week? Is a week long enough? And you, you throw out a timeline, maybe three months, maybe six months, whatever you think is appropriate on the outset. And you check in with yourself. Do I need three months. If I gave myself permission to really wallow in the despair, really wallow in the disappointment, really feel it, I can tell other people, I was so disappointed. I thought we were going to last forever. I was so, and and you could even play, you know, sad love songs and come back to me, baby, and all that stuff. But really embrace the disappointment. If you gave yourself the full permission to feel that feeling or to be, you know, in the despair, to be in the disappointment, or maybe it's anger, to really be angry for for three months or six months, do you need that long? If I give myself unbiased and unlimited permission to feel it fully, then maybe I just need a solid three days. You check in with yourself. Is three days enough? And part of your mind might say, you know what, three days... We need three days to do this. And then you agree. You say, okay, you're going to honor this feeling and I'll give it three days. I'll really be in the whole feeling of it. But then you can just kind of check in. Okay, I agree to three days. Would two days maybe be enough? And you check in with your different parts of you and everyone agrees. All the different parts of you agree. Yeah, you know, two days. I think two days would be, that would be enough. And then you bargain again. Could we get by with one day? And most of your parts say, yeah, yeah, one day would be fine. But one part of you says, no, I really want to be in the disappointment. I I need to work through it. And then you honor that part and say, okay, two days it is. What this does is it gives you an opportunity to feel and deal with process less than admirable feelings, less than amazing feelings, 
and not disown them or take what I refer to as the spiritual bypass. Now, I'm not the only one that refers to it as the spiritual bypass. And I think that's what people are pointing to when they talk about toxic positivity. The spiritual bypass is when we push those mucky muck feelings, the disappointment, the anger aside, and we focus on taking the highest vibe approach, pretending as if we're some elevated being. We're bypassing actually handling, dealing with, being with the pain of it and actually moving towards the feel good, like moving to the other side of it where we want to end up without going through the mucky muck feeling and working through the process. This unwillingness to actually be present to the disappointment, present to the pain, actually sit with it is what perpetuates trauma over most of our life. When I work with people on the level of subpersonalities, we actually investigate those different moments, those origin moments earlier in life, and identify what happened, what was the upset, what was the want or need that was unfulfilled. Then we actually heal that or we reframe it in a way where it creates new possibilities. But this is where I want us to look back a little bit to what I said earlier If we suppose that any thought process that leads to a negative kinesthetic or a negative feeling, a less than pleasant feeling, is potentially an error in our thinking, that gives us the opportunity to actually examine our thought process. Does our thought process have validity? In the example with Janet, when the first example, when I went to despair and upset and angst and just... I can't even remember the feeling, but uh, but I could look at that and say, you know what? There's an error in my thinking here. What am I not looking? How am I not valuing myself? How am I giving her all the power in this situation? Once I identify the error in my thinking or the process that led to the negative kinesthetic, then I can ask myself, is this what I want to do in the future? I can't really change the past. And this isn't the thinking where I should have, could have done something other than the way I did it. But next time when I'm in this situation, am I going to give up my power to someone else? Am I going to make them responsible for my happiness? Am I going to be oblivious to how I impact them? And maybe I was caught off guard. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. Maybe my awareness wasn't there in actually determining, was Janet ever happy? Was she happy with me or was I just in my own bubble of happiness and I wasn't really paying attention to her? You see, all these questions gives me agency. All this, all this questioning gives me a sense of responsibility, a sense of control. All those responses, all those are things I can do something about. Now, here's a bias that I want to disclose, and that is that I am a perennial optimist. I turn it into something good. And so when people talk about toxic positivity, I take it personal. But what isn't typically disclosed when people talk about or use that phrase is the process that I talked about. How do you actually deal with an unpleasant feeling? How do you actually be with it? And that being with it is actually a very important point that I haven't really discussed yet. When you can sit with your pain, sit with your disappointment, sit with your grieving and actually grieve it and ask yourself, what am I grieving? What am I disappointed about? Then I can dig deeper and go to the source. But what most people do is that is so unpleasant to be with, to sit with, they push it aside. 
and they never give themselves the latitude, the permission to actually acknowledge and be with the unpleasant feeling. Now, when you do this, it's important that you don't catastrophize the situation, like make it bigger or worse than it really is. This is when you look at one plus one is two, but why does it have to always be two? Damn it, why? Why is it two? Well, it is. It just is. But we don't have to catastrophize it. We don't say, I'm devastated. This is the worst day of my life. This is horrible. I'll never recover. That, my dear, is you being a drama queen. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. You're being a drama queen. It's you wanting to get the sympathy of somebody else. I'm devastated. This is the worst day of my life. I don't know how I'll recover. That's to elicit the pity of somebody else. This is about you. Can you sit with it? You know, just look at one plus one is two. I'm disappointed. I'm angry. I feel rejected. And you sit with it. And this is where you also ask the question to turn it into something good. How does this serve me? What does this now make possible? In the context of how does this serve me, it gives me the opportunity to look at my behavior and take a look at what can I control? What do I want to shift next time? can't control what happened with Janet. But next time in the next relationship, do I want to change my approach, change how I'm being in relationship and still maintain the integrity of who I am? Maybe I decide not to make it a requirement that she likes Star Trek. I realize it's just something that I like. She doesn't have to like it. Whoever comes into my life next, they, they might like Star Wars or they may not like science fiction at all. I don't have to share that aspect of my life with them. But in the context of asking, how does this serve me? What does this now make possible? This is me sitting in the thought process of moving towards growth. And it's also in the belief or assuming the belief that the universe is always behind you. The universe has your back, that everything is always working out for you. And so no matter what shows up, it's serving me in some way. But I'm not going to know what that is unless I ask the question, how does this serve me? And I have to tell you, in some cases, it may be really hard to see. But if you at least entertain the question, then you're going to start getting potential answers. This is how you can turn events that are seemingly devastating to other people And you can pull out the gold from it. You can alchemize and elevate, transmute the energy, transmute the emotion into something that serves you, something that's elevating. But you cannot alchemize an emotion until you acknowledge it and sit with it. And then ask the question, how does this circumstance serve me? And in the context of the different events that you can control, since you can't control what has already happened... You can ask yourself the question, next time, how do I want it to be? Because you can never, should have, could have done anything other than the way it happened. Otherwise, you would have. Now, remember, all this process, this how you handle emotions, processing emotions, your thought process, is all about maintaining a high vibrational state. If you find your thought process takes you down a road that is less than desirable, then there is an error in your thinking. You just recognize, oh, this isn't taking me to where I want to go. What's a more empowering thought? What is a more empowering thought process? Maybe I need to look at how this serves me rather than takes away from me.
What in this can I be thankful for? What in this can I appreciate? Now, the word appreciation is taking something of low value and through your focus and attention, increasing the value of it. Think about it as an investment. You invest a little bit of money and you watch it grow into something more through your intention and your direction. And so in the context of me assessing my relationship with the mythical Janet, I can start loving and appreciating different aspects of it. How did it serve me? I got the opportunity to love. And when she made a decision not to love me, I still loved her. My love was unconditional. I wished her the very best. Even though she didn't love me, even though she didn't want me, you know, it didn't work out. I can still love the person she is. And I can still want the best for her. It also created the acknowledgement or the, the knowing that my worth is not dependent upon someone else's acceptance of me. Somebody that I even love. They don't have to accept me for me to still have a sense of self. And then I can also love and appreciate those first two years. We had a lot of fun. We did a lot of different things. We had a lot of intimate moments. I will cherish those moments forever. And I look forward to recreating those kinds of moments with someone in the future. Somebody that I can vet and know that they are present fully with me, wanting the same things. That's another thing that I can love and appreciate. I now have a knowledge or a knowing of what questions to ask. Are we aligned with our values? Do we value the same things? Those are questions I never thought to ask before. And so, seemingly, this this relationship that didn't go the way I originally thought it would, I ended up extracting a lot of gold out of it, a lot of valuable information. And so, ultimately, I got a lot out of my relationship with Janet. I am a much better man because I loved her. Now, there is a metaphor that I talk about frequently to give you the idea that you already know that it is not dependent upon somebody else's acceptance of you for you to have value. I like to say there's shopping in a store, in a mall, and you walk by a display and on the rack, you see the most amazing blouse or the most amazing shirt. And you say, that is me. I have to have it. And you flip through the rack, you find your size, and you want to go buy it. But the salesperson says, would you like to try it on first? We have fitting rooms right off here. And you say, you know what? I think I will try it. And so you go in the fitting room, and you put it on, and you realize as soon as you look in the mirror, this collar does not look good on me. It doesn't hang on my body well at all. It makes me look fat or doesn't complement my figure. It, it just doesn't work for me. And yes, you're slightly disappointed because you really thought it would be an amazing blouse or shirt for you. And so you walk out and hand it to the salesperson and says, no, it just isn't going to work for me. And the salesperson says, it's a shame. It is an amazing shirt. It is an amazing blouse. And you go, yes, somebody is going to really appreciate that shirt. It just isn't me. And so no matter how much I wanted that blouse, that shirt to fit me, to work for me, for the color to compliment me, It just didn't. It just didn't fit. It doesn't mean that the blouse or shirt is any less of a shirt. It doesn't mean that it's any less amazing. It just didn't fit me. And that is why when you go to the store, there are racks and racks of clothes of different styles and different colors, different sizes, different fits. Because we are not a one-size-fits-all. And because a particular garment doesn't fit you, doesn't work for you, 
You don't have the conversation. I'm unworthy. There's something wrong with me. That shirt didn't fit me. No, you go to another rack. You go to another store. And maybe, just maybe, in those rare cases when you self-reflect, you know, I need to get in shape. I'm in worse shape than I thought I was. There are clothes that I would like to fit me. And in my current shape, my current condition, my, the current offering I am to the world, I need to upgrade my game. And so from that context, I'm not wallowing in the idea, there's something wrong with me. I'm so out of shape. No, I think about the possibilities. It actually is motivation for me to become more, to become better. This is how it serves me. What does this now make possible? The fact that Janet left me actually makes me available for someone that is more compatible, more amazing, more loving that I have yet to meet. And for as amazing as I thought it was with Janet, it's going to be even better with the next person. Now, one of the things that meditation reveals to us is when we go through the process and we keep redirecting our thoughts to our breath or the whatever mechanism we're focusing on, we realize that we are not our thoughts. That's the ultimate, I guess, revelation in the process of meditation. You have thoughts. You have thoughts all the time. You have incessant thoughts. But when you begin focusing and redirecting your mind, you take control of that thought process. You can actually choose your thoughts. You can choose what you focus on. But just because you have a thought doesn't necessarily mean it's important. It could just be a regurgitation. It could just be erroneous. More often than not, it just pops in our awareness by default because our brain cannot not think of stuff. So this is the awareness I want you to have. As you move through life, understand you have the ability to choose your response, to choose your thoughts, choose your focus. And if how you're focusing your thoughts, if the thoughts that you're choosing are leading you to an unpleasant kinesthetic, then perhaps there's an error in your thinking. Perhaps you can redirect your thinking in a way that it empowers you. Ask yourself the question, how does this serve me? How does this empower me? What in this can I take control of? Where do I have control? And what does this now make possible? Now, in the next episode in this series, I'm going to talk about the different emotional states that are part of being human, the, the ones that are less than desirable. And if we decide ahead of time on how we're going to handle them, then we will have a ready response for dealing with these negative kinesthetics, these de- negative feelings, the less than desirable feelings when they show up. And in the episode after that one in this series, I'm going to talk about how to raise your baseline, raise your emotional set point. Now, in the first episode, I talked about how we have an emotional set point and how we typically acquiesce to that point based on a low-level chronic grade of stress. And in that regard, how we feel from day to day has been a rather haphazard happenstance. It's just a result of non-deliberate thinking. Now, at the time of this recording, I've not yet put together the different resources checklist that I'm going to make available to you. But rest assured, you'll have access to this actual process of how you honor and process an emotion and more. This whole series on emotion and vibration is meant to empower you to live a high vibe life, to take control of your emotional states and make them work for you rather than against you. Until next time, this is your friend and host, Daniel DeNovi, urging you to follow your bliss. Live your life from inner signals. Be inner-directed as you engage in the epic adventure. <laughs> <laughs>